1: Welcome everyone to episode 38 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing?
2: Hi, good. I was nearly going to pull you up then for saying our name wrong because I forgot that we changed it. (laughs) But I'm going good other than that.
1: Good, good. You've had a good week?
2: Yeah, pretty good. I took my dogs um, to get groomed today and it's a traumatic experience for them because they're spoiled children um, so they're still recovering but I'm doing fine.
1: <laughs> my dogs are currently uh, are a bit isolated because we haven't got their, you know, we build built a new house and they don't have – their run sorted out yet so we're kind of letting them out a few times during the day and there's other houses getting built so they're getting out the back and just going bunter at all the other tradies and all the other work sites around us so (laughs) that's a bit of a challenge containing them at the moment so
2: (laughs) that's so good though I love the idea of it I can just picture them
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we got some patreon shout outs this week Chloe
2: we do thank you so much and welcome to Tom Sheridan Kayleen England Alicia S Nicole Woods Jodie Cameron, Robin, and Alex Falcon. There are some people in there that are Facebook regular supporters in our Facebook group, and they've jumped on. So thank you for always adding to our discussion and for the support, guys.
1: Much appreciated. Thank you, everyone. A quick content warning. This case today does contain some fairly graphic descriptions, so we'll try and give you a bit of a heads-up when we get to that point. Today's case is, again, a part-solved, part-unsolved tale, It's about a horrific and sadistic murder, which gets a resolution, we'll leave it up to you if that resolution was justice or not, but it's also about a fugitive, a man who police have described as Australia's most wanted and potentially most dangerous man. Becoming a modern day chameleon is no mean feat in today's world, dropping off the radar either for that matter, leaving no electronic footprint, not having a traceable mobile phone or credit card or any contact with family would make getting by very difficult for most of us. But perhaps, as we'll discover throughout this harrowing tale, the sheer unexceptional nature of the man in question, his complete and utter averageness, is why he's succeeded at this very thing for the past ten years. Before we get to all of that, we have to go back to the very origins of this tragic tale. 6th of February 1981, Crown Gardens Disco on Kira Street, Wollongong, New South Wales. After grabbing a bite to eat after seeing a movie, Kim Barry and Donna Holland were up for a drink and a dance. The local disco at Crown Gardens was the perfect spot and the vibes were good when the girls arrived. Kim bought a bottle of wine and her and Donna had a drink, but Donna wanted to head off shortly after. She wasn't feeling the best, had to get up early for work, and the last train was departing shortly. Kim tried to convince her friend to stay, but Donna was sure. She checked Kim's purse to ensure she had enough money for a cab home. She did. So the pair wished each other a good night, and Kim continued on with her evening. A short time later, Kim spotted an acquaintance she knew from dance classes she'd previously attended. A local coal miner named Graham Potter. The pair had a quick chat at the bar, then went to a quiet spot for a drink of wine. Sadly, this would be the last drink of wine Kim would ever have.
3: <laughs>
1: Kim Barry was a 19-year-old woman with a heart of gold. A very warm, kind and loving person... She had desires of becoming a nurse and volunteered at a local hostel, Cram House, where she cared for disabled children. She also earned a quid on the checkouts at her local Woolworths and the occasional babysitting gig. She lived at home with her parents, Brian and Beverly, her grandfather and younger brother Wayne. So we've got a good picture of a young, vibrant woman here, Chloe, very happy and outgoing, with a good family, a good work ethic and a caring heart.
2: On Friday the 6th of February 1981, Kim's folks were out of town and Kim was tasked with the responsibility of babysitting her younger brother Wayne. He was about four years younger than Kim, so not a small child, probably capable of caring for himself at this age, which is probably in large why Kim decided on this night to leave Wayne to his own devices and head out on the town.
1: That and the possibility that most 15-year-old brothers probably annoy the hell out of their older sisters, that's a given, I reckon, So Kim and her friend Donna decided to go to the movies, grab a bite thereafter, and head to the Crown Gardens Disco for a dance. This place was on Kira Street, which appeared to have a bit of a name for itself back at this time. This is now the site of the new Wollongong Central Mall, as I understand.
2: And we covered most of this off in the introduction. Kim and her friend Donna Holland had a dance. Donna headed home after feeling a bit ill. And Kim had a drink with a guy she'd met a few times before at dance classes. His name was Graham Potter. Graham was actually at the disco on his Bucks night, so he had a small group of guys with him, including his brother Glenn. Graham was due to marry his fiancée Cherie in eight days' time, which was actually Valentine's Day, a little tie-in to our case last week.
1: They were also co-celebrating Glenn's 21st birthday, a bit of a combined thing. But Kim didn't know any of this when she and Graham went for a quiet drink. They took a seat and had a couple of glasses from Kim's bottle of Liebfrau wine. Around 12.30am, after getting along famously during their chat, Kim and Graham decided to leave the disco and head back to Graham's unit in the nearby suburb of Coromal. Graham told his brother Glenn and friends that he'd be back and he left his cardigan and Kim's bottle of wine with them for safekeeping. Sometime later, the exact time we don't know but in the mid-morning we can safely say, Graham returned to the Crown Gardens and told Glenn and his mates that he'd changed his mind about having a fling with Kim. That was clearly his intention, to have one last hurrah. But apparently Kim had gotten cold feet when they arrived back at Graham's, so I guess she kind of made that decision for him.
2: Whatever the case, they'd parted ways and Graham continued on with his night. After they'd all had their fill, Graham and his brother Glenn returned to Graham's unit where they slept things off. So where did Kim Barry go after she left Graham's unit, after suddenly getting cold feet?
1: Well, that was anyone's guess, because she hadn't shown up anywhere. She'd vanished. Her family reported her missing, and police began an investigation into her whereabouts, dressing up a mannequin in similar clothing to what Kim was wearing the night she disappeared, and putting it on display outside the Crown Gardens Disco, They began to interview people at the disco too in an attempt to establish Kim's last known movements or indeed find the person who'd seen her last. On Sunday the 8th of February, two days after Kim had last been seen, a young man named Scott Davies was walking down a bush track near the Jamboree Mountain Lookout. Scott was an apprentice plumber by day, but in his spare time he liked to do up cars He was scouring this track, actually, for old car parts, which evidently were known to be dumped in this area. As he
2: made his way along the track, Scott spotted something, and it wasn't a muffler for his old Holden. It was the body of a young woman lying against a tree. The body was naked, face down in a crouching position. The wrists had been bound to the ankles with a bra, and a top was wrapped around her arm. While the woman's body was mostly visible, her head was seemingly obscured, Scott freaked out at this, understandably, and pivoted and ran back to alert police. And this next part is a bit graphic, but important in that it forms the reason why the murder of this poor woman would be referred to as it was down the track.
1: Police responded and discovered that the head of the woman wasn't obscured, but in fact not present at all. She'd been decapitated. All ten of her fingers had also been severed from her hands and weren't present either. Police could tell the right-hand fingers, presumably similar to the head, had been removed with a hacksaw and the left-hand fingers cut off with pliers. So, Chloe, when you hear about a body being found with no head or fingers, the most obvious things used to identify a body, where does your mind go in terms of suspects?
2: Uh, Probably organised crime or drug-related or something semi-professional, I guess.
1: Spot on, and I think that's exactly where the police went with their initial inquiries. It was a known thing at the time that uh, the drug gangs in the area who wanted to offload one of their couriers for whatever reason would remove their heads and fingers to avoid identification of the body. But these inquiries led nowhere. No leads were uncovered down drug-related paths, and try as they might, police even ran the palm prints on the off chance that they had those in their database, but they couldn't identify the body. So they turned to the media and released photos of the bra and top found with the body.
2: This yielded immediate results when Beverly Barry, who had been watching the news at home in Mount Pleasant, called in, recognising the clothes as belonging to her daughter Kim, who they'd reported missing since Friday night the week prior. The sheer horror for a parent coming to that realisation, viewing a news report, is beyond sad and hard to comprehend. The Barrys had to go down and identify the body, which Brian actually did, shielding Beverly the best he could. And despite the lack of head or fingers, Brian was able to identify the body as his daughter Kim via a distinguishing heart-shaped birthmark she had on her abdomen.
1: And that would be the most difficult thing for any parent to do, I reckon, a task no one would envy at all. So now they'd identified the body as that of 19-year-old Kim Barry, they knew that she'd clearly been murdered, and now they needed to find out who did it and why. Police knew she'd last been seen at the Crown Gardens on the Friday night prior, so their inquiries began there. They had a chat with the barman who was on shift that night, and he recalled Kim for a very specific reason. There would have been hundreds of women this barman served that night, but he recalled Kim in particular because he'd sold her a bottle of Liebfrau wine, and this was the only bottle of this particular wine the venue had sold that night, so it stood out. As they probed deeper and spoke with some of the patrons at the disco that evening, they found two people who shed some much-needed light on this involving investigation.
2: The first was at the disco that night for a mate's bucks party, And he reported to police that the Buck, a guy named Graham Potter, had actually left the disco that night for an extended period of time before returning in the wee hours of the morning. Another friend of Graham Potter's had also noticed the Buck leave during the night with a young woman, leaving behind his cardigan and a bottle of Liebfrau wine on the table for them to mind until he returned.
1: So this second report in particular piqued police interest. The first suggested this Buck, Graham, had potentially left with a woman and done the dodgy on his final night as a single man. A dog act, but not a criminal offense. The second report, however, confirmed that Graham had left with Kim, because she was the only one who'd purchased a bottle of Leaffrau wine that night. So Graham Potter had some explaining to do at this point. Police decided to look into him a bit before visiting his unit. And turns out he'd worked as a mortuary assistant prior to becoming a coal miner, so he had anatomical knowledge and post-mortem experience.
2: So now we've got a couple of very interesting things aligning with Graham Potter here. Police went to his unit in Coromool for a visit. I say visit, I think they planned to search the place. But when they got there, the place was completely empty and evidently on the market for sale. So that put a halt on searching the place as the police made inquiries with Graham Potter's family and his fiancée Cherie and her family.
1: They discovered that on the previous Sunday, the 8th of February, while Graham and Cherie were watching television, Graham suddenly up and left Cherie's place without explanation and returned to his unit where he proceeded to spring clean the place. The following morning, he called his brother Glenn, telling him he had to leave town before withdrawing $3,000 from his bank account and leaving Cherie a note, professing his love for her and apologising that he'd messed up everyone's lives. He'd be in touch, though, in good time, to explain his reason for leaving. Graham then left in Cherie's car, which police had now located abandoned outside Goulburn Police Station. Inside was another love letter of sorts from Graham to Cherie, but damningly, as if he didn't have enough suspicion already, there was also Graham's shirt, stained in blood, blood that forensic testing would confirm to be Kim Barry's.
2: I guess Graham and Cherie's families thought he'd gotten cold feet and taken off prior to their nuptials, so they'd cleaned the unit and put it up for sale fairly promptly thereafter. But it was now a hot spot as far as police were concerned. They forensically tested the unit, and forensic biologist Joy Cool found blood traces in the drain and on the tap in the bathroom. She also found more blood stains in the spare room and some of Kim's hair stuck in the freshly painted skirting boards and in the clothes dryer.
1: And while DNA testing didn't exist at this time, Kim did have one rare trait that aided in identifying her via blood grouping analysis – And that was a rare blood type shared by around 1% of the Australian population. Sound familiar, Chloe? Sounds a bit like the ABRH negative like Lindsay Rose. Uh, Another little link to last week's case. It was looking to police like Graham Potter had murdered Kim Barry in the spare bedroom, then decapitated and removed her fingers in the bathroom. Police would further cement this theory when they discovered amongst Graham's belongings being stored at his parents' house a hacksaw, bloody sheets and a dressing gown. The dressing gown didn't mean much now, but it would.
2: So, Potter's on the run, according to him, because his life's in danger. That's what he relayed in one of those notes, apparently. He wasn't specific about that, but that was the basis for his reason for fleeing suddenly. Sightings were reported of Graham Potter. A driver saw him hitchhiking, thumbing for a ride at one point. But, by and large, he remained on the run for some weeks.
1: Around three weeks after the murder... A man walking his dog stumbled upon a garbage bag and the dog was off and sniffing like any good pooch. But the fella knew deep down this was no bag of doggy treats he'd stumbled upon and he was right. Inside the bag there was a human skull, fingers, bloody sheets and the waist cord from a dressing gown. So it doesn't take Ron Iddles to figure this one out, Chloe. The teeth from the skull were matched to Kim Barry and the waist cord from the dressing gown matched to Graham Potter's dressing gown, along with the sheets.
2: While the case against Graham Potter was solidifying, police were still without knowledge of where the elusive alleged killer was. That was until, bizarrely, he turned up one night back home at his parents' house. Reunited with his family, Graham cried a river of tears while retelling his folks a tragic unfurling of events from the night Kim Barry was murdered. Which we'll get into in just a moment. Before we hear Graham Potter's official version of events, however, it's worth noting that his old man Sonny called police and turned Graham in while he was soaking in the warm bath. Nice work, Sonny.
1: So Graham Potter's pruny ass was hauled out of the bath and promptly arrested for the murder of Kim Barry. And it was at trial that we'd hear two very different versions of events Graham's defence and the police's prosecution.
2: Here's what Graham Potter says happened. He and Kim left the disco, as witnesses said, and she returned to his unit. None of that was in dispute. But the reasons for it were much different. Graham said that Kim told him at the disco that she'd been getting harassed by two men and during their chat over a glass of wine, she confided in him that she was scared to leave on her own as they might be outside waiting for her, these two blokes. So she asked to come back to Graham's with him.
1: Graham, being the good bloke he was happily obliged and took Kim back to his place in a taxi. But when he asked her to pay for the ride, she didn't have any money to do so. Instead, inside her purse, Graham said she had several packets of white powder. Not long after they'd been inside, Graham said there was a knock at the door. He thought it was a friend who'd maybe missed the Bucks party or come back to find him, but it wasn't. Instead, Two blokes wearing dark sunglasses barged their way inside and demanded to speak with Kim alone. Presumably these were the two blokes who'd been harassing her earlier.
2: Kim was happy to talk to them now though and the men asked Graham to leave the room while they spoke. He went upstairs but returned minutes later when he heard shouting and loud noises only to find that these two men had murdered Kim. One was standing over her. She had blood pouring out of her head and the other man was rifling through her purse, presumably after the bags of white powder. The two men told Graham that the same fate awaited him if he went to police or said anything to anyone, and to top it off, he'd be blamed for Kim's murder because it happened at his unit.
1: They told him to go back to his Bucks party at the disco and pretend like nothing had even happened, and that's exactly what Graham did. When he and his brother Glenn returned home later that morning, Graham noticed a blanket had been thrown over the spot in the lounge room where these thugs had murdered Kim. Glenn fell asleep on the couch and Graham went to bed. Glenn then left at 7am the following morning. Not long after this, the two men wearing sunglasses returned. They stored Kim's body in the spare bedroom evidently, something Graham hadn't checked. They dragged her into the bathroom, forcing Graham to watch as they decapitated her and removed her fingers.
2: They then advised Graham that he had to dispose of the body before they left his unit, leaving him with what remained of Kim in the bathroom. Graham then wrapped Kim's body in bedsheets and her head in his dressing gown, her fingers in a bag and her belongings along with the rolling pin in another bag. He thought the rolling pin was what these creeps used to kill her. He then cruised up to the Jamboree Mountain lookout and proceeded to dump her remains at various intervals on the way back down forgetting along the way that he had several bags of parts to get rid of, obviously in shock. Fearing for his life after this, Graham went back to his unit, cleaned up, drove to Goulburn in his fiancé's car and took the train to Melbourne.
1: When he got to the grey, windy city, he dyed his hair and his chest hair and flew to New Zealand, where he got a job. Doing what exactly, I'm not sure, but he came back to Australia out of the goodness of his own heart when he realised he was under investigation. He wanted to set things straight. So this bloke's really just an unlucky buck who's inadvertently found himself mixed up in a drug deal gone bad, got caught in the crosshairs and been made an accessory after the fact. In reality, he's a good bloke down on his luck. Generally speaking, filled with the milk of human kindness. Well, he was full of something, that's for sure. But it wasn't anything good. Graham Potter's story was clearly holding about as much water as Ashley Coulston's shitty bathtub boat and stinking like a bucket of prawns in the blistering hot Australian sun. It stunk, and the inconsistencies were plentiful.
2: Firstly, Kim had no known drug associations, but if she had, why would she have opened her purse to show Graham in the cab? And we know that Donna Holland had checked Kim's purse prior to leaving her friend to ensure she could get home, She had $2 in there, while Graham said she had no money.
1: Then, supposedly, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones had strolled into his unit and killed Kim, but left behind two loose ends, being the ruthless drug gang members they were, him and the body for both Graham and Glenn to come back to and miraculously not stumble across later on. And Graham had seemingly forgotten about this traumatic event only hours earlier and gone about the rest of his night on their advice, after they kindly dropped him off with nothing more than a clip around the ears. The Crown Gardens was right near the Wollongong police station too, so why hadn't Graham gone there and reported what happened? More to the point, why take his brother back to the unit at all, knowing these two drug thugs might be there with Kim's body? And why hadn't he searched the house for them and Kim when he got back? Wouldn't you want to have a look around at the very least?
2: So assuming anything about Potter's tale was true, he was scared for his life and did all of this simply to save his own skin and then fled thereafter for the same reason. He was now back and trying to make things right. Crazy as this all sounded, the police did investigate his claims. They worked with Potter to form identikit images of the two men in black sunglasses.
1: That's another point that didn't add up, as this was the middle of the night this all happened apparently, yet these blokes are donning the Ray-Bans. Anyhow, Graham struggled with the identikit images, particularly the eyes, which he continually changed. It was said by police that these are usually the things that witnesses were most certain about in creating these images, the eyes, Witnesses at the Crown Gardens also couldn't recall seeing any two men hanging around either inside or outside the club, let alone interacting with Kim or harassing her. So with all that out of the way, here's what the prosecution hypothesised.
2: Kim had likely gone back to Graham's unit with the intent of being intimate with him, but when they got there, she changed her mind. Maybe it was something Graham did, maybe she discovered that he was on his bucks, engaged to be married, and then she spurred his advances. This angered Graham, and he's flown off the handle and landed a huge blow to her head with some kind of heavy object, either the earlier mentioned rolling pin or a large spanner, some report said. He then left her for dead and returned to the disco, and Kim wasn't dead, and the examiners could tell that because the food she'd eaten earlier that night with Donna had digested, so that would have taken a number of hours.
1: Graham then returned home earlier in the morning, realised Kim wasn't dead, and struck her again with the heavy implement. When that didn't kill her either, it suggested he strangled her to death. And they could tell this actually from burst capillaries inside Kim's teeth, a telltale sign of strangulation. They theorised Graham had then cut up Kim's body in his bathroom, then dumped her up at the Jamboree lookout. So we'll leave it to you which version of events to believe, What we can tell you is that the trial lasted 11 days. Graham was the only defence witness and gave his version of events via a doc statement, which prevented the prosecution from cross-examining him. His team argued that the two methods by which Kim's fingers were removed were proof that two people were involved.
2: But the jury didn't buy that, and in April of 1982, Graham Potter was found guilty of murdering Kim Barry and sentenced to life in prison. Graham Potter maintained his innocence and stuck to his story about the two men wearing sunglasses. But, in 1987, if anyone had any doubt, another bag found would go further to removing that notion. The bag containing the rolling pin, Kim's purse and remaining clothing was found. Graham had previously said he'd turfed it, but they didn't find it at the time. Inside Kim's purse, no bags of white powder were found but there were $2 that her friend Donna had observed for Kim to catch a cab home.
1: So, ordinarily, Chloe, this is where we'd wrap things up and give our thoughts about Kim's tragic murder at the hands of an absolute monster, but we're going to hold off on that because there's a twist here. This isn't the end of the story when it comes to Graham Potter, disgustingly known as the Head and Fingers Killer from this point. We said it at the start, right? This was part solved, part unsolved. Well... As to the question of justice, one could contend that Graham Potter was given the appropriate punishment of a life sentence. That would be reasonable considering the heinous nature of the murder he committed. But in 1993, the New South Wales Supreme Court reviewed Graham's case under truth sentencing legislation and revised his prison term to a minimum 12 years, 8 months. He served 14 years before being paroled in 1996, a rehabilitated man.
2: That seems wrong, sure. I think we can all agree on that. What makes matters even more mystifying for me is that in 1990, Graham actually escaped from Bathurst Jail with another inmate and was recaptured the following day. Did he not cop an extra whack for that? And does that scream rehabilitated to you? It doesn't to me.
4: For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
1: So now we get to the unresolved part of this, where we discuss Graham Potter the Fugitive, Australia's most wanted man. He's still out there now, to this day, hiding amongst us, awaiting recapture. Not for Kim Barry's murder... He's technically served his time for that crime, but for a spate of other failed criminal activity in the succeeding years after his release. So, whilst he was in prison, Graham and Cherie still got married. She evidently believed his Men in Black story, and while in jail, Graham met a senior mafioso named Pascal Barbaro. Barbaro was enamoured with Graham Potter's resume as a ruthless murderer, and upon release hired him to begin running drug shipments between Tasmania and Victoria.
2: But Graham Potter's true skills would be called up by the mob when he was tasked with hitman duties amidst the Melbourne gangland killings in the mid-2000s. He was tasked with what was described as a vengeance murder plot to kill two men, one named Fidel D'Amico, who was a friend of Mick Gatto.
1: So here's how this went down, and this is really where Potter would turn into Poindexter with his below-average criminal abilities. He bought a Mitsubishi Magna for the job, a little run-of-the-mill thing with questionable ownership papers, but he didn't get it roadworthied or even checked out by a mechanic. On his way to do the job, the Magna broke down, leaving Graham stranded on the roadside with little to no mechanical knowledge. With the help of one of his wise guy acquaintances, he got the Magna moving and continued on towards the job, but again it packed it in and blew out on the roadside before he could make it. A third attempt to revive the shitbox on another date also failed to get him to the desired location for his debut Underworld hit. So he'd bought this absolute lemon, committed to this life of crime after proclaiming his innocence all these years, and on his first job, failed miserably. What made things even worse is that amidst the breakdowns, Graham and his mafia buddies were obviously so distracted, they didn't notice they were being tailed.
2: Police had them under surveillance, swooped, and Graham Potter was busted for the aforementioned drugs activity an ecstasy haul of 15 million tablets smuggled inside tomato tins and three counts of conspiracy to murder. But in February 2010, after making bail on these charges, it would be Graham's average nature that would aid him in completely disappearing off the map. He jumped bail and fled to northern Queensland, where he was spotted in August of 2010.
1: The police pulled up a car in a random intercept. Three blokes were in this car, three random drifters who were camping at a nearby caravan park in Tully, Queensland. They teamed up to head out to a concert this evening on August the 28th, 2010. But when the police pulled them over, the three blokes all ran. One was grabbed at the scene, another was arrested a short time later, but the third bloke, who was wearing only a pair of jeans fled into the tropical scrub and escaped. Turned out this third bloke was Graham Potter. Police raided his campsite thereafter, seized his equipment and released photos to the media. At the campsite, Graham had knives, cable ties, lubricant, handwritten notes detailing how to survive while on the run and threatening to kill anybody who recognised him. There was also mention of him wearing fat suits and other various disguises, wigs and dyeing his hair, etc.
2: There's been numerous sightings of him since in areas such as Ravenshoe, just south of Cairns, Griffith in New South Wales, that was in July of 2016, Tokenwall and Cobram in Victoria – He's known to have connections in the Riverina area as well. He looks like an ordinary
3: middle-aged man, but Graham Jean Potter is a dangerous fugitive and Australia's most wanted man. After a tip-off, police now believe the convicted killer may be hiding near the town of Griffith.
1: That's why we're appealing for the person who rang crime stoppers late March, early April 2017, to please recontact us.
3: Potter has remained on the run since 2010 after being charged with conspiring to murder two men on behalf of the Mafia. The 59-year-old also faces drug trafficking charges in relation to $440 million worth of ecstasy that was found hidden in tomato tins. He is dangerous. We ask the public not to approach him. Potter was once known as the Head and Fingers Killer after viciously murdering 19-year-old Kim Barry in 1981. He uses various fake names and has previously hidden in the bush.
1: He is a master of disguise, so he may have added weight, he may have added a beard, he may have taken off a beard.
3: Despite a nationwide manhunt and sightings in North Queensland, Toowoomba and Cobram, Potter has given authorities the slip. Police are now desperate to catch him.
1: He's number one across the nation and we want him.
3: A $100,000 reward is on offer for information leading to Potter's arrest. Jackie Quist, 7 News.
2: So the extremely ordinary nature of Graham Potter has actually aided him in remaining undetected. Police believed he may have charmed an older female and been living somewhere remote, getting by using manual labour skills to help some unsuspecting persons. He has welding, beekeeping, hydroponics, aquaponics, gold prospecting and earth-moving skills, and police think he could be working as a caretaker, farm or station hand of some kind.
1: He's 61 now, Graham Potter, and we'll post a range of pictures of him for you all to see. They range from him looking like some sort of half-baked 80s porn star to a long-bearded, outback, flannel-wearing punter through to an everyday accountant who you'd have file your tax return. A real chameleon who you wouldn't look at twice. Potter has also gone by the aliases Josh Lawson, John Page, Jim Henderson and Peter Adams. He's described as Caucasian, 175cm tall, medium to solid build, with a fair complexion, brown eyes, brown greying hair and a ginger beard. He often wears a gold sleeper earring in both ears, wears glasses and regularly wears a gold chain around his neck.
2: A $100,000 reward for information leading to his capture remains in place today, as the news report said before. Police have warned anybody who sees Potter not to confront him, but to call triple zero immediately. Anyone with information on his whereabouts should contact Crimestoppers on one 800 333 or visit www.crimestoppers.com.au.
1: But that's it, Chloe. That's the case of the awful murder of Kim Barry and the murderer and present-day fugitive Graham Jean Potter. Now, this one was a very sad case. I feel very deeply for Kim Barry's family, such a pointless and brutal murder and a tragic end to a beautiful young woman's life. I hope she's at peace, and my thoughts to the Barry family, even after all these years, that's just something I think you'd never get over, just learn to live with. As far as Graham Potter goes, I would love to see this weasel captured and put away. And you'll see the pictures of him when we post them, but he's got this scummy little cheese-eating rat-like face, a smirk that makes you just want to knock five shades of shit out of this bloke. He's a real bad one, this guy, and very dangerous. I'd be surprised if he actually doesn't have more victims, to be honest. I don't think he spent his life just simply avoiding detection. I think he's a a predator, and he could have a, a long line of victims out there. Not necessarily all murder victims either, but potentially. That's my thoughts. Yours, Chloe.
2: My general thoughts on this are that I feel a bit sick. What an awful crime. Like you said, Sean, for me, the brutality of the murder was not only sickening, but really shows what kind of monster Graham Potter is. I'm not going to lie that I'm not a little nervous to talk about someone like this, but as we've said before in missing persons cases, we always think that the chance of someone remembering something and saying something makes taking that little risk worth it. I don't have any other thoughts other than, as you said, I feel really bad for the Barry family. I think they'll be in my thoughts for a long time, and I hope they're all doing okay.
1: Absolutely. And on to some uh, happier thoughts now, Chloe.
2: Yes. um, So my name is first. (laughs) My happy (laughs) thought is that. uh, So Luke and I love movies and the Oscars were on this week and we always make a point of watching all of the Oscar winning movies. It's just a bit of a yearly bucket list thing, I guess you could say. Um, and we haven't seen Parasite yet, the movie that won best picture and, you know, broke records because it was the first foreign language film to win it. And it's just been critically acclaimed all over the place. Um, the director also made a hilarious speech, if anyone's seen it, on like at the end I think he finished with, now I'm ready to get really drunk or something like that. <laughs> um, so we bought it. I went to <laughs> JV Hi-Fi, bought the physical DVD because I can't stream it anywhere and we're our weekend plans, our big weekend plans are to watch it tomorrow so we can tick off our list that we've watched the <laughs> best film that won at the Oscars. <laughs>
1: Excellent, enjoy. I didn't see anything about the Oscars other than heaps of stuff about Brad Pitt. It was just everywhere. Uh, I know he he won. He's
2: nailing his speeches.
1: Yeah, right, okay. And he's making
2: the best speeches ever to the point where someone accused him of getting a speechwriter, but he apparently said that, no, he just gets super nervous so he really takes the time to sit down and think about what he's going to say. But his, especially his Golden Globe speeches were super funny.
1: No, I didn't see it, but uh, he was everywhere. But uh, no, enjoy the movie. Sounds good.
2: Yeah, it should be. Uh, what's your happy thought?
1: Uh, mine is I purchased new underwear. So <laughs> <obviously>, <laughs> a lot of there's a few there's a few bloke, few blokes who've probably seen this. Um, step one underwear out there. And, uh, yeah, it's meant to be pretty cool. Um, I was in dire need of getting some new stuff, so I've bought that. Uh, It's on its way, and uh, I'll keep you all updated as to how comfortable it is.
2: And the lack of chafing, is that not the main selling point of those things?
1: Uh, I think it's that and kind of the material and just the design. Yeah, it's a few few different things. Oh,
2: I do know the ad. It seems very complicated, but good luck and keep us updated on your undies, I guess. Shall do. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime.
1: If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. That's it for us this week. Thanks for listening, folks. And uh, we will be off on the main feed next week to do our Patreon episode, but back the following week. So uh, unless you're on Patreon, we will catch you all then.
2: See you then. Bye.